My loves, let me ask you something. Are you ready to dive deep? Or do you feel like you need some time away from the people, place, and things that make up your current life? It could be both. You're like, I need to get the fuck away from everything and everyone. And I'm also ready to take my spiritual path to the next degree, honey. Okay? Regardless of what it is, I got you. There's two legendary, amazing, delicious opportunities for us to practice together in person this year. The first one is at the iconic Omega Institute in New York, upstate New York. And the second one is in Mykonos, Greece, honey. And both of these retreats are going to be a combination of the spiritual dance practice, also known as the SAT method, also known as the spiritual workout, and Dharma talks. So let me break this down for you. The SAM method, for those of you who are like, what the fuck is that? It's a practice. Uh, it's an experience. It's a, it's, a, it's a performance art healing experience that I created um, that combines ecstatic dance, meditation, breath work, and mantra. And these four practices are here to activate, amplify, and energize the four qualities in your heart, according to Buddhist psychology, which are love, compassion, joy, and wisdom. So during the retreat... And, and upstate New York is five days, excuse me, six days, five nights. And Greece is eight days, seven nights. I'm going to tell you more about this in a second. But during the retreat, we're going to dance. We're going to dance twice a day. Okay. And dance as much as you want. Move as much as you want. But the whole purpose of the, of the movement is for you to actualize what you learn during the theory part. Where we're going to sit around and I'm going to explain to you through, through the, the, my interpretation and my understanding, my studies of Buddhist psychology, I'm going to give you all that I know during that dedicated, you know, retreat time away from the people, place and things that make up your current experience. You're going to be devoted towards your heart, towards your liberation. Therefore, you're going to be able to then actualize that which you learn during theory in the dance floor. And then you're going to be, be able to bring that all back into your life once you leave the retreat. Going to retreat has been one of the best things that I've ever done for myself. It has changed my life. And you've heard, if, you, if you're a listener, uh, an avid listener to the podcast, you've heard me talk about going on retreats over and over again. If you've read my books, you know that going on spiritual retreats is how we take our practice to the next level. Oftentimes we do need to take time away from people, place, and things that make up our current life in order for us to truly discover who are we really and what is it that I want to do in my life. And maybe you're like, I already know who I am and I'm already happy with what I'm doing in my life, but you want to actually bring more joy, more bliss. You actually want to be happier, more playful, more lighthearted in more lightheartedness into your life. This retreat, these retreats are for you. You can either come to one or you can come to both. It doesn't matter. The point of the Psalm method, the spiritual workout, the spiritual dance practice is for us to say fuck off to people that says that when you are a disciplined spiritual practitioner, you become more serious. That is a lie. Okay. The truth is the deeper you become, the, the, the deeper you, you, you enter into the spiritual path and the more you're disciplined about your spiritual liberation, the more playful and lighthearted and more smiles and more humor and more laughter your life becomes filled 
with. Okay, so click the links in the show notes and I hope to see you at, in upstate New York at the iconic, legendary Omega Institute. Uh, let me tell you the dates. Uh, upstate New York is June 19th through the 24th. Okay, and Greece is um, October 8th through October 15th, okay? And if you have any questions or concerns about the retreats, when you click the link in the show notes, um, or so you can visit my Instagram bio or my TikTok bio to get all the details for the for the retreats. If you have questions, just go onto the retreats website and, and click over there to find out how you can talk to the retreat producers. They're both amazing powerhouse companies that are producing my retreats. They will be able to help you with anything you need, okay? I love you all so much, and I cannot wait to practice with you and get free with you. Love you. Peace. Okay. First of all, welcome back to the Spiritual Disaster Show. Hi, my darlings. Hello. I'm recording um, this introduction from Topanga Canyon, California. Wow, what a journey it's been. And let's talk about the episode. I'll, I'll talk more about what I'm going through in another episode. Let's talk about today's guest in today's episode because it blew my mind. Oh, my goodness. And you may be saying, oh, Sai, you say this every, every time. That's right. But there's something, but no, and there's something so special about Dr. Lisa Miller's work. You know, she is a scientist and someone who is like literally a, like bridging spirituality and science in such a beautiful way, weaving the tapestry of spirituality and science, such a beautiful, relatable, digestible way. And, and all of her scientific research is oriented from her spiritual practice. I mean, this is what we need for us to reach global mass awakening. So I'm just so happy to have her on the show, honey. And listen, I'm going to read her bio because it's one of those that you got to read because it's got a lot of words and it's like so big and bold. Um, and of course, I'll put all the links in the show notes for you to find out all the stuff, all the things that she's doing. And, um, and her and I are also going to be teaching together at the Omega Institute this summer. So look at the show notes for more details. Okay, let me read you part of Dr. Lisa's bio because the rest of it, I feel like my English capacity, it doesn't, I can't. All right. And I'm just going to give myself that limitation and be okay with it. So I'm going to read part of it. Okay. Dr. Lisa Miller is the New York Times bestselling author of The Spiritual Child. We talk all about this in episodes, so get in, honey. And her new book, The Awakened Brain. We also talk about this in the show. As well as, she is as well as a professor in the clinical psychology program at Teachers College at Columbia University. Casual. She's the founder and director of the Spirituality Mind Body Institute, which is the first Ivy League graduate program and research institute in spirituality and psychology. And she's held over a decade of joint appointments in the Department of Psychiatry at Columbia University Medical School. I mean, honey, her innovative research has been published in more than 100 peer-reviewed articles in leading journals, including Cerebral 
Cortex, the American Journal of Psychiatry, and the Journal of the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. I mean, honey, get into the episode right now and enjoy. Enjoy. Love you all. Peace. Oh my goodness. So I am so excited for today's episode. Honored. So grateful. Dr. Lissa Miller is here with us. Hello, my love, and welcome to the show. I'm so excited to be with you, Sa. I've been so looking forward to this. You know, you walk the walk and you talk the walk. You live top to bottom, true to the word. So this is really a joy. Oh my goodness, look who's talking, but thank you, darling. Thank you so much. Uh, Thank you, truly. So honored to have you here. Where in the world are you? Well, at this moment, I'm Mm -hmm. right outside of New York in the country with lots of trees and birds. And today I saw like a tiny little otter. So, you know, I'm I'm in the kingdom. Nice. Is it cold? Yeah, I would have to say. (laughs) (laughs) It was 32. Um, Oh, my goodness. But I I can't wait to see you in person in a few months. I look forward to that. Oh, my goodness. Me too. We'll talk about what we're going to do together a little later, everyone. But let's jump into let's jump into the first question I ask every guest is, who are you right now? Thank you. That's very generous. And I, I haven't been asked that. Um, I would say I am the same soul on earth as are we all. And, but at this point in my path, I'm crossing a bridge. Mm-hmm. And it's been a bridge from a time where I've yearned to contribute, a time to connect and contribute to a time where I, I now need to take stock and really think, you know, is this a crisis? Is this a global crisis? Because if it is, then I need to really ever more sort of keep one foot on my path, but work hand in hand with mm-hmm. fellow healers and, and teachers like yourself. I mean, we've got a all hands on deck. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's where I am. I'm in a phase of, of, of great passion to collaborate together mm-hmm. and work mm-hmm. together for this, what I call a spiritual renaissance we're having. Mm, I love that too. Yeah, I feel like there is, um, you know, when I took the Bodhisattva vow um, back in 2018 with Jitsuma Tenzin Palmo, the vow just says that you're willing to come back to earth as many times as it takes to liberate all beings from suffering. It's very audacious. It's a very big, big vow. Um, but since I've taken that vow, I've had this like urgency about the work, you know, and I hear it in your tone too. And it's not an urgency, like a rush mentality, but it's just an urgency that's like, hey, a lot of people need a lot of help right now. Like almost feels like more than ever. How could I put myself on the line? And this leads me to ask you, how did this, even before this sense of urgency that's that's like, you know, bubbling up in your mind and in your heart right now, what led you to become Dr. Lissa Miller and write these mega boss books and helps and do all this epic stuff that you've done? You know, what propelled you to do that? So like every single child born on day one, I was a very spiritual child. We all are. And I had a mother who prayed and she was so moved by God's presence, whatever one's word may be, spirit, Hashem, Allah, the universe, the spirit, the loving, guiding spirit, that she would cry joyous tears, gratitude as she prayed. And I just knew that the spiritual reality was foremost. It was so clear because that is what I saw every single day in the person I loved most in the whole world, my mother. Mm-hmm. 
And then as I grew up, I wanted to talk about this. I couldn't wait for kindergarten to talk about the spiritual world. And I didn't hear much discussion. So I thought, well, when I'm older, this is so important. It must be in high school that mm -hmm. we talk about the spiritual reality. Mm -hmm. And that came and rolled by until finally, you know, I was old enough to teach my own classes. And I said, we're going to talk about spirituality because this is the foremost reality. Mm -hmm. um, what gave me the real passion to carry this forward was, you know, in my heart, this very deep love of what's true. And I don't claim to know it, but I claim to be on a deep, passionate quest mm -hmm. for what's true. Mm -hmm. um, and I wasn't willing, you know, who, who becomes a professor? It's not for the pay, right? <laughs> it's not for the good times. Mm -hmm. The only reason you become a professor is because you're in pursuit of, of the truth. And so I was going to use this chance to really use the tool I had, which is science, clinical science, psychotherapy, mm -hmm. clinical psychology, to, to join with people in the deepest, most real way. Mm -hmm. So that, that's the professional path, but the, but the real personal reason mm -hmm. um, to really, you know, full disclosure, and I get into the sum in, in the awakened brain, mm -hmm. is that I, right as I was coming of age as a scientist and as a clinical psychologist, um, you know, I was looking left and right, and I saw all these different theories of how we get through our most painful moments, mm -hmm. moments of total, where it hurts so much, it's like needles, the anxiety mm -hmm. is so sharp. And it's the, the feeling of, oh, no, another wave of depression is coming. It's like, you know, creeping up from behind, like a tidal wave of depression. You know, I, I was feeling these things as a, as a young adult, all of this sort of anxiety and dread. And there was nothing in the field that was speaking to me about how to get through this. Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, maybe, you know, you just can't study about things. You got to do the work. So I went and I found a therapist and I sat down and we started talking about the darkest moments, the most painful moments, the most, you know, moments of betrayal, moments of hurt. I'm like, this isn't helping me get any better. This mm. is sort of like, you know, there was a, a little scar there. And now we've kind mm -hmm. of ripped open the scar, but I, I, I don't feel any better. So I went to a second psychotherapist and there it was cognitive. And we talked about thinking differently about myself. And, you know, I, you know, my mom, my mom adored me. So I don't have particular problems about how I think about myself. And that didn't help me either. So I went from therapist to therapist, you know, dynamic, cognitive, nothing was helping. Mm -hmm. And here I'm supposed to be an emerging psychologist. And there's not one single tool in my toolbox that is mm -hmm. helping me. Mm. you know, and I started looking at the suffering of patients and wondering, well, how much are we helping them? So it was really my own journey that mm -hmm. pushed me to dedicate my life to using science to understand the role of spirituality mm -hmm. and healing spirituality mm -hmm. as the lifeline out of despair and how our personal spiritual life is game changing on everything. And if you want, I could get more into my own road, but I, I tell yes, me please. No, tell me more. Keep going. I'm just like, yes, yes, yes. Affirm me. Yes. I, I a hundred percent agree. And I also, you know, I, I, I often say to people, there is like three ways that we come into the spiritual path, either like hippie parents. And I guess your mom could be, you know, qualified a hippie because of the level of faith and divinity that, that she experienced in her prayer. And then you by witnessing it were like, oh my God, this is, this is the high truth. I want that. Or through our own despair, Right. Or through boredom, which I think very few people enter into the spiritual path out of boredom. Like, oh, all my basic needs are taken care of. I'm mostly fine. Everything's fine. And they start to explore. 
for me, it was not hippie parents. And for me, it was not out of boredom. For me, it was out of despair, out of contemplating my own um, life and, and, and really thinking, should I unalive myself? Is this what's going to, to reduce the suffering? Is this what's going to eliminate the suffering? The choice to unalive me. And, and then through the practice, like the choice to actually go out to India and study and like sit in silence and really greet my mind and greet my shadow and open my heart and learn about forgiveness. Oh my God, why don't we talk about forgiveness ever anywhere, you know? And why do we have such an aversion towards the topic and compassion and care for others as a way to experience God or divinity or liberation, you know, in service to another. Um, so I like that you have to check out of your, in your path, you know, a mother that was, you know, I consider a hippie parent in, in that way that your mom fits that, that, you know, that framework, and then your own uh, despair, your own dread, your own depression. So eh, keep going. We're, we're all ears. This is literally like what we want to hear. It's like how somebody like you, who has done so much, who has studied so much, what is it like to be in your, in your mind, in your heart, in your day-to-day -day life? The fact that you still experience these waves, you know what I mean? It humanizes the path. And I like to say that, you know, vulnerability has been my biggest superpower that I never shied away from saying, you know, this is what this is what I'm going through. And right now it's very obvious to everybody that I'm going through a big heartbreak. You know, I'm like deeply heartbroken, nursing your heartbreak. And and how do I open up to paradox? You know, how do I live more paradoxically? And I think one thing that I've realized on the spiritual journey, it's like I think the highest truth is opening up to this and that you know, and all truths are, are, can exist together. I could be heartbroken and still inspiring. I could be miserable and still find poetry, you know, and I think we have a hard time wanting to, to kind of label ourselves with one thing only. I'm happy or I'm sad. And it's so limiting because our words do not give context with the, to the multiplicity of our inner world, you know, so please take it away. We are all years, you know. So I, I, I'm, I'm grateful for your honesty and open-handedness and I'll share my story. And then I'll share if you, I could a, a thought about what might bind both of our stories together. Please, please, my dear. So uh, when I was about 30, my husband and I had been married for five years, right? I was a child bride by today's standards, right? <laughs> and we were living in New York and I was doing the work I'd always dreamed of doing, which was I was a clinical psychologist on the Upper West Side. And he was doing the work he dreamed of doing, which was he was a lawyer in Midtown. And all we wanted in the whole world was to start our family. So you know, we'd, we'd worked hard, we'd built the sort of building blocks and we thought it was time now to quote, make a family. Mm -hmm. Well, so, you know, we tried, right? In that same camp of control and ego, we was time to make it and we tried. And after about six, eight months, nobody came. Mm. No, nobody was conceived. And so he we thought, well, we've got to take a vacation. <laughs> <laughs> so we packed our bags and we went to the van and they, I think we went to St. Martin and it was beautiful and it smelled like suntan oil. And we were a couple in St. Martin trying to make a family. Mm -hmm. And we came home thinking, well, I wonder if it'll be a boy or a girl, you know? And pretty soon we realized, no, it's neither a boy or a girl. Nobody's come. And this was heartbreaking. We realized, well, maybe, you know, you seem healthy. I seem healthy. Let's just get a doctor to take a look at this. Mm -hmm. And we did. And the doctor said, 
what we thought, ah, you look healthy, you look healthy, you're very young, you'll get pregnant, but we can help you. So the doctor starts, you know, the first step is, um, you know, not so invasive IUI. And we try about for six months, eight months, nobody comes. Mm. Um, and then we think, well, maybe we'll ratchet it up. And maybe that's not this doctor being a researcher. I got online and I found the lab with higher rates of conception. So we packed our bags, left that. <laughs> oh my I'm not laughing at yourself here. I'm just saying, wow, the the what we do, right, in these moments. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, the right. I'm going to achieve a family, right? So you can hear the latent, you know, trap of mm-hmm. I, I can do this somehow. It's in human control. Um, if we just get the strategy right, A plus B plus C will land this, right? So we go to the doctor with better rates, and sure enough. Um, the doctor with better rates looks at me and says, you're healthy. And turned to my husband and you're healthy. We should be able to get you pregnant. Right? Mm-hmm. And if you, in the air and water of our culture, certainly through the medical field is that we somehow are the conductors of life and that, you know, or we're the pilots and we're going to land this plane. And so sure enough, six months later, we're still not pregnant and we've started now in vitro. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, you know, we're stepping it up and stepping it up maybe we should go to really the best doctors in the country. So sure enough, we researched it and we identified the medical team that invented in vitro, the researcher. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, urchins, basic scientists, you know, yeah. they, they found the, so we pack our bags, we go there, same refrain. You're young, you're young, you're healthy, you're healthy. Mm-hmm. We should get you pregnant. And I finally was getting the picture saw in my heart that while this may be the right path for another couple, mm-hmm. I was in the wrong office for me. That we were in the wrong place for mm-hmm. our path. It was just this very unwanted whisper in my heart mm-hmm. that, you know, no, this isn't going to be an answer. Mm-hmm. And given the burning desire I had to have mm-hmm. a child, mm-hmm. this isn't the answer. It was not, you know, well, then what is um, what I wanted to confront? Mm-hmm. But as we started pushing and pushing forward and I started getting the picture and my husband did too, Phil, this was not going to be our path to parenthood. Mm. Something pretty remarkable started to happen, Mm. which in our darkest moments of despair. And I mean, I'm telling you, you know, I'd wait, you know, in vitro would happen. I'd call the doctor. This is the moment. This is the moment. We're sorry, Dr. Miller. It it didn't work this month, but maybe next month. You know, we're sorry, Dr. Miller. We're sorry, Dr. Miller. It Mm. felt like a funeral. It felt like that tiny little speck that had been implanted in me of hope and possibility had died. Mm -hmm. And every field in vitro felt like I was at the funeral of our future, the funeral of our child. It felt awful. Mm -hmm. So we're sorry, Dr. Miller. It didn't take it. Mm-hmm. The more it hurt and the more I had no control over the greatest suffering in our lives, the more we started to notice that people were showing up very lovingly on our path. You know, people mm-hmm. who maybe had been a little standoffish or we didn't think particularly cared were showing up with a great amount of love, um, you know, and, and would start to say things like, you know, I just want you to know we are really here for you. I, I know it's hard. I know you don't want to talk about it, but we really care. Mm-hmm. And I suddenly realized that there are a lot of people and a lot of love out there. Okay? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The second thing that started happening was that 
a very special type of person showed up on the path who I've come to call a trail angel, someone who basically shows up synchronistically and says exactly the thing at that moment that we needed to hear. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it was face to face and sometimes it was via a messenger. And mm-hmm. sometimes it was maybe in a book or a film that showed up at that moment. That's mm-hmm. And the crescendo was Phil and I are sitting together on bed rest after what I sensed was to be another failed in vitro, but we were mm-hmm. trying, you know, mm-hmm. running, running hard as we could ran on this treadmill mm-hmm. and, you know, to try to sort of make it more pleasant. Cause I felt like a pin cushion stuck full of these little needles and mm-hmm. and out of my mind with all these injections and medicines, we stayed at a very nice hotel. And at this nice hotel, I reach for the remote. We're going to relax. Let's watch a little TV. And the remote is stuck on one channel, only one channel. Uh-huh. And I'm like, well, how much are we paying tonight? And it's one channel. So click, click, click. And that channel is a documentary of a little boy. And oh, my boy, God. I'm at the edge of my seat, honey. Oh! <laughs> uh, okay. Little boy is an orphan. Mm-hmm. And the camera shoots him standing on top of a garbage dump. Mm-hmm. In Central America, and the little boy says through the translator, I don't care that I live here in the garbage. I don't care that I can't go to school, but it hurts so much to not be loved that I sniff you to make the pain go away. And I thought this little boy needed a mom and a dad. Right? Mm-hmm. And we wanted a baby. And what was between us and this little boy? He's suffering alone. We're suffering without a child. It was the enormous egotism that somehow our kid had to look like us, have our sense of humor, but somehow more our kid if it came through the body. You know? mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, we have really made our own suffering. And then Phil looks at me and he said at first, he said, there's a child out there for us. And that was the type of life-changing synchronicity that started showing up in our most pained hours of the least amount of control, where the Mm -hmm. worst of the worst, we want more than anything, a baby was not going to happen. And and sure enough, within the week, you know, Mm -hmm. those words were in my ear. There's a child out there for us. There's Mm -hmm. a child. I come back, I'm feeling kind of blue. Mm -hmm. Of course, yeah. I felt like, again, you know, a funeral and I, I get on the bus and it's a pretty empty bus and we pull over on the side of Broadway and a gentleman gets in who was, um, you know, it was a big empty bus and he was headed right towards me. And I thought, you know, any other day, but today I don't know, I have it in me to be, you know, conversational any other day, but right now I'm, I'm in mm-hmm. a big bus. He plops down next to me in the next seat in a big empty bus he says, miss, you look awfully nice. In fact, you look like just that type of woman that would go all around the world adopting children from all over. Oh, okay. Trail angels. That's what we're calling them, right? Trail angels. Okay. Mm-hmm. Trail angels. So I've been on a bus, you know, up until that point for 32 years. And I've been on a bus since that point for 33 years. And I've never, ever, but for that day in the week of my despair, but the tip of the realization that there was a child out there for us 
been told that I looked like just that type of person to go adopting kids. Mm-hmm. Wow. So way too unprobabilistic to have happened by chance. And what really was that synchronicity? I felt in that moment, I was aware that loving who I call God, you can call spirit or force of life in us, through us and around us who embraces us. Mm-hmm. I felt loved and held. I felt guided. Mm-hmm. And I was aware that I was never alone. Mm. Loved, held, guided, and never mm-hmm. alone. And mm-hmm. that realization, which was only strengthened with more encounters, with more trail angels, led me to realize that the way out of depression wasn't to look back to my parents and figure out what they did wrong, nor was it to think that I'm a better person than I used to think I was. The way out of depression was to move from a solipsistic ego-based notion that I control my lot and I want to get what I want, or it's terribly disappointing to one in which I opened my heart and listened to all the trail angels that are who we are for one another. Mm -hmm. Opened my heart and asked the question, what is God? What is life showing me now? Spirit, what do you say? So I went from a state of control and solipsism and real isolation, really a closed system to an open system where I realized that we're in dialogue with the spirit in and through life, where I realized that suffering is to be cut off from the deep, deep common ground of life. The way I think of it now is we're mm-hmm. white caps on the ocean. And if I just think I'm a real hot wave, then I disappear and I'm gone. But if I know that I'm a white cap on the ocean, I'm part of, I know in my deepest seat of being part of the oneness of life and suffering is being cut off from the deep oneness of life. It's being cut off from the unity, the symphony of life, of which we're a part and thinking Mm -hmm. instead that I'm going to get what I want instead of let's discover what life has in store for who we can be for one another. Mm, I love that. And I love that you spoke to something that I find very, very edgy and having you say that out, it's so beautiful that my way out of depression is not to like place blame on someone or some experience, you know, like to psychoanalyze my way out of despair is by, you know, talking or wanting to find a a, something in my past to you know place all the responsibility and in some cases it's true in some cases you know arriving at the point where you place the responsibility where it's required where it's needed because we've been the victim in a multiplicity of ways and and then there is there is that choice to say okay all this happened and then how do i go from a closed system i love that language you use thank you dr lisa from a closed system to an open system where i'm back in contact with all of life where i'm now thinking about adopting a child you know and what does that mean from 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 my point of view it's you've tapped into mahakaruna to the great compassion and and through the buddhist perspective you know we say that the way out of suffering is to think about the well-being of others and people are always kind of reluctant to that answer. They're like, but I'm but I'm suffering, but I'm in despair, but it's about me and my life and my needs and my dreams. And what about the child that I was supposed to be pregnant with? And, you know, and then you really, when you actually read the mystics and you talk to a scientist like you, you know, and you actually understand that the way out of it is to open up and how do I offer something? How do I give something back, even when we, when I feel like I have nothing? And we always are think of ourselves and our and our inner resources 
very in a very limited and i like the language that you use in a closed system if i'm a closed system i only have this amount of resource but if i'm an open system then i have endless resources it's not about the money or the stuff it's like it's about this this energetic exchange that you can offer somebody you know how many times i've sat next to my mom in chemotherapy and i just had nothing to offer besides my presence you know, besides a silent blessing in my mind. And then the miraculous things happened. You know, we trail angels, to use your language again, I'm loving all this. Trail angels start to populate and, and love starts pouring in and support starts coming into my life. It's, it's the most incredible thing. I love the open system language. So thank you. Thank you, Doc, for saying that. And you know, what I say to my students at Columbia is that we are a point and we are a wave. And we are way too obsessed with the fact that we're a point in our culture. You know, you're at this GPS coordinate and I'm at this one and here's my zipped up bio body suit and here's yours. Well, we are magnificently, beautifully, exquisitely diverse. And God is the superposition in an all creation and beyond. So we are all godly and magnificent and diverse. And we are a wave. We are part of one family of life, one unitive field of love and wisdom. That is us, one consciousness. And so suffering is because we're educated 98% of the time into only being a point where we have to make our way bumping up against other points. But when we know that we're also truly in the deepest sense, part of one spirit, we are one family of life. We're one field of love and consciousness. Then suffering goes away when we start to live in our wave potential, when we join the, the unity of life. And mm -hmm. that is something that was not taught to me in school as I waited patiently. I wanted to hear about the spiritual symphony mm -hmm. and no one talked about it. And it took our bout with infertility to realize that life lived as a closed system, as a point atomistically was a very narrow splintered life. But when we choose, and it's truly just a choice, we can do it this second, this moment, I am part of the family of life. I'm part of the field of all life. Mm. Then everyone we meet is a messenger and they to us and us to them. And whatever spirit or God puts on my heart in this moment to say that's loving and good, I say, because there's someone who needs to hear it. And what they say, I need to hear there, We all mm -hmm. have a divine appointment for one another. Mm -hmm. It's a symphony. Mm -hmm. mm. Okay, so saw the plot thickens. Can I? Do yes, I? please. Oh my God. No, I'm like, yes, honey. <laughs> Keep going. This is so good. I literally have had so many like full body chills and like I'm just moving over in my chair closer and closer to the screen. <laughs> please take it away, my love. Human journey. This is this the human soul inside. Yes, professionally, I'm a scientist, but. I knew that everything I was learning in science was incomplete. It all focused on the closed system. It all focused on life as only a splintered atom as mm. opposed to its full embrace of all life, being part of the fabric of all creation. So I knew what I was seeing wasn't there. And I had, as I was stepping forward in my path, a parallel path you know, of trying to work through the lens of science to say what really is our spiritual possibility through suffering? How might suffering be a knock at the door, if maybe even the ignition for a spiritual journey? So then we don't say depression's lost or downtime or bad. We say depression is the start of the emergence of the person I need to become mm -hmm. to inherit the next stage of my life. Depression mm. is a gift. It carries in it a promise. The whole arc 
that will unfold before us of spiritual emergence and awakening. Mm. That made more sense. And it was propounded by, well, I'll, I'll tell you, <laughs> okay. <laughs> we finally get, I'll tell we finally get the picture that there's a child out there for us. Mm-hmm. We finally get that picture and something in my heart opens and there's a shift and there's a different feeling about life. There's, I, I start to feel hopeful, but it's more than hope for me. It's more like in our mind, we are where we are. And I'd thrown a switch where I was more part of the family of life, less cut off by my ego. My eyes were starting to open. I was awakening. And as this awakening started, I went to bed one night, husband by my side, Phil, co-pilot. And suddenly I wake up. I'm, I'm, I am awoken. And I look over and Phil's fast asleep. And I hear clearly, it's the equivalent of in my mind's eye in, in an auditory sense. And I wasn't confused. I didn't think like someone had walked in the room. It, it was in my mind's eye. I heard the mm-hmm. message very clearly. If you were pregnant now, would you adopt? And the voice was very deep, very, very deep, very judicious and very awesome. Um, profoundly good, but so mm-hmm. majestic and powerful that I, you know, believe me, this is not anyone you'd even like mm-hmm. fit <laughs> like this was a very pro and I mm-hmm. sat up, I heard the question. And this newness, time and space opened. And again, in my mind's eye, I saw the numinous time and space open. If you were pregnant mm-hmm. now, would you adopt? Mm-hmm. And it was a very profound presence, a sacred presence. Very, very, you can feel the spiritual presence so powerfully. Mm-hmm. And I said, I'm getting closer. But no, I knew that if that night I got pregnant, although I'm being guided shown that there's a child out there for us the little boy trapped as an orphan in the garbage dump my husband's saying there is a child out there for us i knew i was drawing closer i could feel my ego and my arrogance and my controlling this starting to unravel but still the answer was no i'm not quite there yet again though depression is the ignition you can feel Mm -hmm. that we're on a journey you can feel there's promise and hope of emergence of awakening Mm -hmm continue down the path. There's more helpers and healers. Um, one of which is my older cousin. My name is Lisa Jane Miller mm-hmm. and my cousin, her first name is Jane. So I'm little Jane and she's big Jane. And she was the one who showed me life's ways. She sent me our bodies ourselves when I was a little girl. You know, she was my, my big Jane. Mm-hmm. Um, she called and she said, you know, Hey, little Jane, you know, you think you're so smart, Miss Columbia. You know, no one talks to me. So, <laughs> you think you're so smart, Miss Columbia. But if you really want to understand spirituality, then I think you need to come out here and visit me for a Lakota healing ceremony. Mm. And when life knocks, you know, knock, knock, the only answer is yes. So I canceled my 14 appointments for the next week and I got on a plane and I flew out and joined in a healing ceremony. I was very honored. I was very grateful that the Lakota community invited me in. Mm-hmm. She sought an invitation before my yeah. arrival. Yeah. And there, one by one, people stood up and spoke of their pain, their trauma. And after each person spoke, the drums would start. And every member 
of the community lined up single file to wish their best, to whisper what had been put on their heart in the ear of the person who was healing. Mm -hmm. Chief stood up and with his hand on his heart, his first words were, my greatest love, the love of my son and his eyes welled with tears. My son who I adopted. I said, wow. And then after the healing ceremony, we went to the Anipi, the sweat lodge. And sitting there, the women in one sweat lodge, the men in another, sitting in the sweat lodge, the woman who introduced herself as the medicine man's wife mm -hmm. conducted a ceremony of healing in which each woman went around the fire and said why she had come. So the first woman said, I am here because my son, he's 14 and he's starting to use drugs and I'm afraid I'm going to lose him. And the next woman said, I am here praying for my son. My son is 40 and he's not coming home. And I fear for the family and that they will stay together. And the next woman spoke of her son and around we went till we got to big Jane, big Jane. It was in that moment, so very appreciated mm -hmm. that I am here with my cousin, little Jane, and I was speechless. Little Jane is looking for her child. She's been looking for quite a while now. It's been five years. And I'm wondering if we could help her find her child. And for the first time in this grueling path, this very, very painful road of trials, I knew I was in the right room. And the women looked to me and a big Jane and back at me and, and nodded, yes, yes. They understood that this was the place in the space to find mm -hmm. the child. Mm -hmm. Well, we prayed for each other, mm -hmm. for us as a group. And then in a sense for sort of the collective, it was a prayer mm -hmm. for the collective. And whoosh, mm -hmm. under the guidance of the medicine man's wife, Again, in my mind's eye, I saw the same numinous prayer go up. Mm -hmm. Well, that night, after five years, came a call. Mm. The call was from a clergyman's daughter who had been searching and searching and searching and searching mm. for the Miller's child. Mm. She said, um, literally, it was the night of the prayer. I called in the next morning to our machine. Mm -hmm. We found the Miller's child. We know that Mr. Miller had requested a daughter, <laughs> but we found the Miller's child mm -hmm. and it is his son. Praying for sons. Mm -hmm. We can find you a girl. There's many terrific girls, but we know this is the Miller's child. I'm well, so moved by this. Oh, my goodness. They mm, found mm. Miller's child, who's now named Isaiah Lakota, in honor of the women and, of course, spirit who brought Isaiah. Mm -hmm. um, so that his video comes. Mm -hmm. I, in that second, after this five years of anxiety and despair, that second, mm. uh, I felt this tidal wave, this euphoric love like I'd never felt before. Here was this little boy who they'd found in an orphanage north of St. Petersburg, Russia. Other side of the earth. Mm -hmm. Da, da, yes, yes. His arms swung around the nurse. Da, da, full of joy. And I became a mother. 
What was apparent? Apparent is love, true euphoric love and commitment. That was my spiritual son. Well, my husband and I were overjoyed. We played the video, I mean, all over and over and over. There's our spiritual baby. We found our baby. It's a miracle. Adoption is a miracle that through space and time, what if he'd been born 20 years earlier, 20 years later, we would have missed each other. What mm -hmm. if I hadn't gotten the picture on bed rest? You know, mm -hmm. what a miracle. So unprobabilistic, far too unprobable. Mm -hmm. It happened mm -hmm. by chance. So we go to bed, mm -hmm. my husband and I, and the presence comes. The numinousness opens of time and space. The, there's a certain rhythm that I feel each time. There's a profound sacred presence in the room and a deep resonant voice. And mm -hmm. the question is, if you were pregnant, would you adopt? Mm -hmm. If you were pregnant, would you adopt? Mm -hmm. And the answer is unequivocally, absolutely, of course. We found our spiritual child. Mm -hmm. Yes. And that night we conceived his twin, his spiritual twin. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Spiritual twins. <sighs> I'm so moved by this story. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for sharing it. So I was like my the whole time I feel like there was like tears about to come out. And um <clears throat> so now you have two kids. Well there's more. <laughs> okay. Oh my god, so keep going. Yes, yes, yes. I just have so many questions. Oh my goodness, but keep going. Give it to me. Only that at about twenty months. So um as I was pregnant, every time I would go to the OB and I'd watch the baby in the sonogram kick her feet. I'd look over and Isaiah in his little stroller would be kicking. And then Isaiah would poof out and fall into sort of a peaceful slumber. I'd turn my head back to the screen and the baby was asleep. So they were mm -hmm. deeply connected, very, very deeply connected. And in fact, I kept having this recurring image in my mind, a recurring sort of um, awareness, a spontaneous awareness, which was long ago, a promise was made. Mm. Come to vision, the visual with that were two monks in Kyoto. Long ago, a promise was made, two monks in Kyoto. Mm -hmm. And the senior monk was harmed and fell ill and died. And the younger monk said, I, I will come for you. Mm -hmm. Well, let me tell you, I get a stack of baby pictures Isaiah and the new baby, first stack of baby pictures, the baby in her tiny bassinet, can't even sit up, newborn baby. And at the top of the stack of the photos of little baby and baby and Isaiah and coming home are two pictures mm. of a monastery in Kyoto. Oh my God. Of the beautiful raked pebbles of the structure Wait, what? How? Yes. <laughs> yes. Long ago, a promise was made. You know, if you were pregnant now, would you adopt? Yeah. Well, my first night with the newborn baby, who we named Leah, 
first night together, you know, little babies look like they're 900 years old. They're so wise. They're pure spirit, the cosmos and the baby. Mm -hmm. She's, you know, can't hold her head up. She's rolling around and we make eye contact. She looks at me and smiles and shoots me an extraordinary cosmic wink. Like, (laughs) 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 oh my God. Wow. Wow. Oh my God. Dr. Lisa, is this what inspired you to write The Spiritual Child? So it was clear to me that every child is a spiritual child, that we come from the source that mm-hmm. wakes us up in the night, mm-hmm. opens up time and space, mm-hmm. and guides us by posing the questions we need to ask. Okay. Mm. Wow. So every child is pure soul. Um, mm-hmm. And how then does soul, you know, body, mind, and soul together now at birth mm-hmm. and have it a foundationally spiritual journey in life. Wow. So that prompted the spiritual child again, mm-hmm. um, uniting my journey with that of science, the awakened brain had to do with my waking up mm-hmm. as a person on earth, right. As mm-hmm. a journey on earth, but yeah. also waking up to understand that the suffering I'd experienced and as I look around as a clinical psychologist, I'd say the not every single time, but the majority, mm. the majority of times that we suffer, it is not psychopathology. I'm not against medication. There's times for it. And there are times where a little piece needs to be rebooted or broken physiologically. But I would say about 70% of the time, more often than not, we are on a spiritual journey and suffering is our invitation to awaken. Wow. So the awakened brain speaks about this, right? That how suffering is the gateway to spiritual liberation, to awaken. But before we talk about this, I want to I want to give the rest of the podcast all to talk about the awakened uh, brain. But I want to talk just briefly for this about the spiritual child because there's there's so many moms who listen to the the podcast, mm-hmm. and through my research uh, that I'm doing now for for my new book that's only going to be out in 2023. Um, I can't I'll, wait. Yes, it's about community and friendship and, and the importance of community as um, as as like, you know, as the Buddha said, you know, one of his disciples asked um, the Buddha said, how much of the holy life is the spiritual path? I think and, and the disciples saying this is all the disciples saying, I think it's like 50 percent. And then the Buddha says, dear one, um, the community the the sangha the spiritual friends are the entirety of the holy life and that just like opened the door for me to understand how i have been able to like support myself and like and like band to the point of being broken but i don't break because of my community that's with me you know um and then i've you know through my own uh, research and my own inner revelation and through the you know talking to scientists and people like yourself realizing that like 50 percent of the work it's between lowercase u and capital um, uh, y. Excuse me, I'm like thinking in Portuguese. <laughs> uh, low case, lowercase u, capital uh, u. You know, between you and your mind and your heart, fifty percent of the work is done between you and you, and then fifty percent of the work is done between you and the community. And so that's what inspired that book. And and one big thing that I'm noticing now with the with capital T trauma, us blaming our parents for everything. And and there is responsibility to to be upheld and to be placed. Don't get me wrong. But if there's any insight you can offer the audience to moms 
and and um, about the spiritual child, about like raising kids, about anything that's like that could support um, parents to do better. You know, I don't know another way to say it besides like do better. You know what I mean? <laughs> really? Well, you know, so as you say, parents are so well intentioned. Every parent loves her or his child so much. And so we do everything we can as best we know. Right. And so I spent a lot of time. I've raised three children. Um, one is in high school, two are now in college because I asked, I wanted them to be old enough to ask their permission before I wrote about them. And they all also it's three kids. Good job. Yes. Okay. I wanted Isaiah's permission, which he was very happy to give me as it turned out. Um, Mm -hmm. So we'll do anything, right? I mean, wake up at five and go to travel hockey. Sure. Um, travel for four days so that they can get the best piano lesson. Sure. Um, you know, sure. We'll do anything, sit for hours and do SATs. Sure. But it turns out that all that stuff, really the instrumental stuff um, can be helpful, but it doesn't get our children anywhere unless they know where is truly their North star. Mm. right they are running in circles they're running away from their north star they don't where is the ultimate source of direction in life mm. and it turns out that every single child we know this through twin studies we know this as a scientific fact is born with an innate capacity for a relationship with spirit higher power and it is that same neuro docking station as we get older that allows us to see spirit in one another. Mm -hmm. Relational spirituality, as you put so beautifully, saw our sangha, our minion, our journey group in life, our fellowship, those spiritual relationships are beheld and felt as, as sacred events, God's presence, spirit in mm -hmm. these relationships. So it doesn't matter if I just walked in the door and I sit down with my sangha, my minion and my fellowship, and I was just on the front page of the paper with a ticker tape parade and I won $10 million, or I was just put in jail and I did something hideous and no one else wants to talk to me because mm -hmm. I show up and I'm looked at with love by a true spiritual community. We are so much more than what we've done or not done, what we have or don't have. Our true eternal highest self is seen and loved in a spiritual community. And we see each other's higher self so that we look at each other and have the joy of celebrating that of all time and space, just like me and Isaiah, mom and child, we in the community were put here now together. Mm -hmm could have missed each other by 50 years, five years. The great design, I would say mm -hmm. the higher power has put us here now. And who are we to each other? Trail angels. Mm, I love this. So parents, you know, should capital S be finding ways to cultivate their kids spirituality? That is, you know, from the New York Times bestselling book, the spiritual child that you wrote is like that should be that's like one thing you would offer right that is our primary responsibility okay. that we are ambassadors of, of mm -hmm. spirit open the way and show their royal guests our babies around mm -hmm. life you know, yeah i i think that there's nothing we do as parents that's as important as support the natural spirituality in our children 
and children Good. show that's us. the best advice honey i'm like yes 100 you could have given me an entire scientific thing about this and this this research and that but you went for it for the heart of the matter god i love you already honey and i haven't even met you in person yet so soon i'm like yes you are the real deal and you don't and you the give an f you know you don't give a mm. you're like yep yeah, this is it. Thank you. Thank you so much for saying that, Doc. This is like chef's kiss, as they would say, right? You're like the cat's meow. This is really good. Okay, so now let's talk about your new book. Dump us into that. So that book has become about your personal awakening. Yes. The awakened brain. And basically what happened was I went on the road with the spiritual child and I thought it would be two or three months, and it became three and a half years. And where I saw people start to cry was when parents would raise their hands. And this is after, you know, two hours of intense science and discussion and our children, and how can we help our children realize their natural spiritual birthright? Mm -hmm. Two hours, and then the tears flow. Mm -hmm. And a mom says, am I spiritual? How do I be spiritual? And the answer is yes, every one of us is spiritual. We're naturally spiritual spiritual beings, but it can feel rusty and it can feel distant because we have pushed the truth of spiritual primacy out of the center of the public square. And Sai, you're putting it back in. And the awakened brain and the spiritual child join you in putting it back in. We are naturally spiritual beings in the center of society. We mm -hmm. need to love and know and see and speak from our deep innate spiritual birthright. I mean, there's every bit of science says that we are only going to flourish. We only move through suffering to renewal when we connect at the deepest spiritual level. And so to, to be silent on this is to, you know, in medicine, if you go into the hospital with a broken arm and you leave with TB, you've gotten worse in the hospital. It's iatrogenic harm. Well, when someone comes to a therapist or to a friend or to the public square in suffering and we silence spiritual life, we are making them worse because they are suffering because they're disconnected from the field of life, from the spirit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So writing the book came out of the book tour of Spiritual Child. Tell me about like your favorite chapter in uh, The Awakened Brain. Well, I would have to say it's it's at the end where mm -hmm. Isaiah and Leah and Lila have all now been born and they're young. We're sitting around the kitchen table and we're coloring. Mm -hmm. She's very much themselves. You know, Leah is born an artist. Artists are born that they Lila is born a strong little athlete picking things up and lifting things. And Isaiah is an animal whisperer. Wow. Isaiah Lakota mm -hmm. with all his relations. And we look out the window and it's a March day. So the waves are strong on the river and the mm -hmm. geese who are trying to swim upstream are having a really hard time paddling as hard as they can to get upstream. Mm -hmm. And Isaiah jumps up from his chair, throws open the kitchen sliding door and runs down to the banks of the river. And he says, come here, geesey, come here, geesey. And he starts jumping and moving along and showing them the way up the bank. Come here, geesey. And saw the geese get up out of the water, they move towards the bank, one after the next, climb up onto the land. And Isaiah walks them all oh, the way my God. The, to safe harbor. And they followed him. Wow. 
This is so beautiful. Is the, the book is out now. The Awakened Brain is out now. And I'm so grateful to share this at this moment because I do think coming out of the pandemic, a lot of people, a lot of moms say to me, you know, this was a huge waste of downtime for our family. My kid's behind in reading. I'm mm -hmm. more depressed. I don't know what my next play is. I don't know what I want next. I'm not going back to work. You know? mm -hmm. Well, this is exactly the opportunity, the suffering that's an ignition for our growth to shed the closed system view. Mm -hmm. I got to do, you know, I got to decide, am I going to go to work? Am I going to pick up my kid? What am I going to, and move from a world where we think we're going after and getting what we want to a world where we are discovering a journey and take our kids through life with that very open system. Mm -hmm. of what is life revealing what are, you know that red door i went for that red door so hard i worked hard in high school i went to that college and what the red door was stuck mm -hmm. but only because the red door was stuck only because covid came and canceled prom and changed our employment and shattered our illusions of safety could i shift and for the first time discover there's a wide open yellow door that mm -hmm. i i would have told you there weren't even yellow doors where there's a new way of living, mm -hmm. new way of living. And I think what the awakened brain shows us through MRI studies, through the stories, mine and other people's stories, mm -hmm. is that the most powerful part of our brain is actually receptive. We receive inspiration. We receive guidance. Mm. And that, you know, the greatest love of our life is not just our partner. It's that love is in everything. The trail angels, right? Mm -hmm. So that you know, we can receive guidance. We are loved by walking out the door. We're loved. Um, and the, I think the most important point that mm -hmm. neuroscience shows us yes, is that please. when we awaken, we are never alone. And if you think back to my trials with Isaiah, the guy on the bus, mm -hmm. Lakota, mm -hmm. people who walked with me, who I've not seen since, but love and honor. We are never alone. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Wow. I want to bring back to something about, because I think a lot of people have a hard time leaning into suffering or pain or or their shadow as, you know, as as you say, like the as a doorway for awakening, you know, and I think it's, it's a very much rooted in, in like, you know, tantric Buddhism, Vajrayana Buddhism. It's very much like poison is medicine, you know, how do we, and, and really this, this reminds us of like, uh, you know, being an alchemist and transforming or, you, you know, like just how do we, can we speak to this from a scientific perspective? Like how does the brain that we think is perceiving danger and something bad and wrong and, and fearful and how do how can i you know like how can the listener shift their view of it and lean into it to actually like milk the the beauty like how could i see you know my trauma through a poetic lens how could i see um you know harmony and and chaos like how could i awaken through through the challenges you know post-traumatic spiritual growth. Ooh, right? yes, you got the words, honey. <laughs> okay, that keep is, going. That, that is our endowment. That is our endowment. That is our gift. That when the world as I know it does not hold. So trauma is not just being anxious or upset. Mm -hmm. Trauma is the bedrock under my feet has crumbled. That's my right. footing does not hold. 
there's a terror, there's an anxiety. When the world as I know it doesn't hold, then we break through to a deeper truth. We break through the cracking of our world frees us. And so too with depression, when I'm depressed, you know, yesterday living in my box, I was fine. You know, I, I lived in my life. I had my spouse and my kids and my work and everything felt great. And today the same exact life feels confining and I'm edgy and I'm angry at everybody. Depression isn't just sadness. Mm-hmm. Depression is irritation and no one's good enough and I'm not good enough and I'm not big enough. And I'm, you know, and so yesterday was fine. Today isn't well that pushing up against our lives is that box is the same size. How we look at the world is the way we looked at the world yesterday, but today it's too small. Today. It's not enough today. I'm agitated and stuck. And that's the call. That is literally a spiritual call that I need to shed, not my life, not these poor actors. It's not their fault. It's not my husband per se, my kids, my job, my way of being in the world. The box is the limitations of my perceptions. The box is my habitual way of being and leaning into life. I've, that has to break. That has to shed for me to grow and expand and awaken, to see life more truly, to look more deeply into a more expanded, true reality. So what does that mean? It means that I don't fire my husband and leave my kids and wreak havoc in the physical world. Mm-hmm. I'm for deep spiritual growth. So I, mm-hmm. in my path, I pray. Some people meditate. Some people walk and say, ask nature to show the way. Some people read, but whatever one's spiritual practice may be to open up and receive guidance, mm-hmm. to open up and perceive that we're loved and held. And not alone, and then be that mm. for others. Again, the same neurodocking station that lets us feel and know our relationship with our higher power, that lets me be in a re- living relationship to God. I ask a question and an answer is revealed. That same neurodocking station allows us to see God in one another, relational wow. spirituality. And when we do either of those things, say the rusty prayer meditate, walk in nature, open up the transcendent relationship. Mm-hmm. We then look at others with that love and vice versa. When we serve others, love of neighbor, what the guy on the bus did for me, right? Mm-hmm. Is love of neighbor. Some woman in the back of the bus, right? Mm-hmm. Doesn't look like she's very happy today. Mm-hmm. Came to me and spoke spirit through him. Mm-hmm. When we show up for one another with love of neighbor and service and altruism. We ignite the transcendent relationship. They're one in the same. We're ambassadors mm. for one another. Mm. And that's proven scientifically, like awaken the transcendence. Ooh, I like this. Yeah, <laughs> the proof, there's several layers of proof. One yeah. is when we look at people to recover from despair through a deepening of spiritual life, they show a thick cortex, like a thick trees in regions of the brain of perception reflection and orientation. So there is a neural correlate in people who recover from depression through strengthening their spiritual awareness. Well, once that's built, once we grow spiritually, once we develop a spiritual response to suffering, that suffering is a knock at the door to awaken. We strengthen the brain and we are neuroprotected, looking prospectively, One year down the line, people who strengthen their brain across the parietal, precuneus, and occipital 
with a strong spiritual life were protected against depression a year later. There is neuroprotective benefits of spiritual life against recurrence of depression. And ever more so, not only are we girded against a subsequent depression in its depths, there's still loss, there's still pain, but we've developed a spiritual response to protect the downward spiral. Wow. Resilience, right? Like, Resilience. Wow. That's right. We are neuroprotective. Spirituality is at the core of resilience. Mm. How much so for mothers and fathers, a young teen or an adult who develops, you know, 19, 20, 21, a strong spiritual core is 80% less likely to become addicted. Put in scientific language, a standard deviation above as compared to below the mean and a tendency to say, I turn to my higher power for guidance, guidance in times of difficulty, who knows that he or she is loved and held, never alone, is 80% less likely, 80% decreased relative risk for addiction as measured by standard diagnostic criteria, the DSM, less likely to be addicted to alcohol, less likely to be addicted to drugs. Wow. 60% less likely to have major depression, that downward spiral, so that sorrow and disappointment receive a spiritual response. They don't just downward spiral left willy-nilly. There's nothing a parent can do for her or his children that is nearly as important. By far the most important job we have is to support our child's natural spiritual growth. Oh my God. Mic drop, honey. (laughs) Wow. You know, it's interesting. It's like we, you know, I, I was like a you know, science nerd, I would read up of all this stuff. And that's like how I got, you know, my foot at the door teaching at all these, you know, cool places in New York at the beginning. And at some point I said, why am I relying so heavily on the science when I truly have seen the benefits of deep spiritual practice? And I said, F this, I'm just going to focus on this, on my spiritual path. And then it's so refreshing to have you sitting here with your life's work devoted to you know, br- showcasing the the science behind spirituality. So thank you so much, because you know in the West we believe science versus God. We believe science versus spirituality, uh, unfortunately. But people like you, who are in these like really powerful, renowned positions, can reorient the conversation, and and um, and really upgrade the the collective um you know the collective thinking so thank you so much well so thank you for your powerful voice when people hear it through your voice it resonates in the heart and we know what's true and in fact science would even say that as you hold sacred presence you like a lightning rod in the presence through you entrains our brain, which is to say if you put an EEG on your head and ours, right? As you hold presence and as you hold sacred mm-hmm. place, the mere neurons in our brains very quickly come to look like your brain. Oh my God. Oh my God, this is so exciting. Yeah. <laughs> consciousness, two locations, Saw's brain, Lisa's brain. Wait a minute, one sacred consciousness, thousands of locations simultaneously. Wow. So oh it goodness. is your words and it is also superposition of consciousness as it is welcomed and held by you. Mm. Do you talk about all of this in the awakened brain, all this juicy, delicious science that you have an ability that not a lot of scientists have, which is to like make this stuff really like relatable. 
So that's how the book is, right? Thank you, Sal. It really is. It's a journey. It's my journey and the journey of people like yourselves who are now contributors in our society, very much so because they had their own spiritual quest. Mm. And yes, science mirrors that which we have experienced on the road. On the beautiful oh my god i love it wow well thank you so much i feel like i didn't ask you any of the questions i had or uh or the team has prepared but this was like way above and beyond better thank you I so much you my dear you saw thank you thank you i do have one last question that it's like a must ask um sure. what does it mean to you to be spiritually sassy oh that's wonderful <laughs> Truth, with great joy no matter who or what is in the room. Mm. Thank you. Thank, thank you, thank you. you, thank you. Yes, thank you so much, I appreciate it. And uh, we are doing something together this summer. I can't wait. We are, the Alchemy, um, Alchemy of the Sacred Mind. It's June 24th through the 26th. At Omega. At the Omega Institute. And um, there's all kinds of amazing people joining us too. I'll put the links for all this in the show notes. Also put the link to your latest book that we can bring. And um, I look forward to more. And thank you. Thank, like truly so profoundly grateful for your time and your ability to convey such um, complex topics and, and complex science in a really digestible, um, relatable way that we can we can really listen from you and and from me and be like, yeah, that's right, honey. I don't need to like go anywhere. It's like, this is it. This is the highest truth. Let's just dive into the work. So thank you so much, my love. Truly, truly, thank, thank you. you. I loved every moment with you. Oh, thank you so much. Everyone, peace. I'm Sadi Simone, and you've been listening to the Spiritually Sassy Show. If you haven't yet, Go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and reveal this podcast. And join me next Sunday for another spiritually sassy conversation. Thank you so much for listening, and I love you. Bye.